51. The text, it reads like this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure, Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen. Off tonight's sermon with a question for all of you. My question is, what is the purpose of studying Scripture? This is a question that I was confronted with last week when I was in South Wales for my preaching and preachers class at Union. This seems like a pretty easy question, but the wording that we use when we answer a question says a lot about what we think about when we are studying Scripture. It affects how we are engaged together when we gather around the word of God through listening to sermons or when we approach the scriptures by ourselves during our quiet and devotional times. Answering this question is of first importance to our faith. As we discussed this question in class last week, my instructor uh, started talking about an essay by the famous author C.S. Lewis entitled Meditations in a Toolshed. 
In this essay, Lewis describes the experience of sitting inside of a pitch black tool shed in which a single crack above the door allowed a beam of light to shine through into the shed. The beam did not illuminate the entire shed, but only existed by, him, by itself, to which Lewis said he saw the beam, but not things by it. Then C.S. Lewis describes himself moving his head so that his eyes were falling into the beam of light itself. His, his, his entire perspective changed so that he was no longer seeing the beam of light in a tool shed, but instead he was looking along the beam of light. Lewis writes this, he says, I saw framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door, green leaves moving on the branches of a tree outside and beyond that, 90 odd, 90 odd million miles away, the sun. Looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very different experiences. What Lewis is trying to do here in this essay is talk about the distinction between the two types of knowing something or how we think about what we know. Now, I realize I sound a bit confusing, but stick with me for a minute. We can look at and observe things in empirical terms, looking at and defining certain characteristics of those things. For Lewis, this is what looking at the beam of light is like, seeing that it peeks into the room from above the door and observing the shape of the beam. While this type of knowledge is good, it is devoid of any emotion and experience. This is the simple observation of just seeing the beam as it is. The other type of knowledge is one that is more based on experiential knowledge. Again, looking back at Lewis, this is what he refers to as looking along the beam of light. This is where Lewis sees the leaves, the trees, and the sun at the end of the beam of light. Looking along the beam produces a certain experience, usually evoking emotion. This is because you are seeing things along the beam of light, not just seeing the beam by itself. So, how does that affect how we study and how we look at God's word? Well, our mindset in this way, in this way affects how we approach our scripture and how we study it. Are we looking at the text as we would look at the beam of light, looking to observe different things about the text and what it says, trying to become masters of the text itself? Or are we looking through the beam, through the beam of light, at the end goal of seeing God and getting to know him more intimately and ultimately praising him for who he is? Now, don't get me wrong, I am not saying that you cannot have both of these two types of knowing. You need both of them. And Lewis is arguing the same thing here in this essay. But we need to understand that scripture is ultimately about knowing God and worshiping him. So we should be looking along the beam of light as well as at it. 
This idea of both studying God's word and seeing God through the study of, of scripture is exactly why I wanted to look at the Psalms, looking specifically at the different attributes of God. Together through this series, we are trying to look at both the beam of light and to understand what each psalm says, but also look along the beam and see God at the end of it. So this evening, I want to continue in the series on the attributes of God, this time looking at how God is merciful. The attribute of mercy is so important to the Christian life because of how central it is to our relationship with God. Remember a couple weeks ago when we looked at Psalm 99 and studied God's holiness, that he is set apart because he is perfect while we are sinful. Well, without God's mercy, we would not even be or have a relationship with him at all. We would be cut off and cast out because we as sinners could not stand in his holiness. But because God is merciful, we can have this intimate relationship with God as his sons and daughters. All of this made clear to us in texts of scripture like Psalm 51. So this evening through Psalm 51, we are going to be looking at the fact that we need God's mercy, that God gives us his mercy, and that God's mercy brings us to genuine worship. Now let's dive back into the text together and look at, take it a couple of verses at a time. Starting at the beginning, it says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and has done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret so what we have here in psalm 51 is one of six penitential psalms in the psalter these penitential psalms deal with themes of confession and repentance of personal sin if you were paying attention to the screen or if you were looking at the headings in each of your bibles you will see exactly why this particular psalmist is repenting of their sins. I know in my ESV Bible, the heading says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. For most of you, this story of David and Bathsheba probably comes to your mind quite vividly. But if you do not know the story uh, too well, let's quickly review the story from 2 Samuel 11 and 12. The story begins with David being home in Jerusalem when he should have been at war with the rest of Israel. One afternoon, David goes up on his roof and sees from his balcony a woman bathing. 
David, seeing how beautiful she is, sends for word about this woman, finding out that it is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Overcome with his desires, David sends for her and then lies with her, only for Bathsheba to become pregnant. Trying to cover up his mistake, David tries to bring Bathsheba's husband Uriah, a a soldier in Israel's army, home to sleep with her. So it looks like the child is Uriah's. Unfortunately for David, Uriah is a righteous and upright person in this story. He refuses the luxuries of being home while his brothers are, continue to fight on the battlefield. So David's plan does not work. When Uriah returns to the battlefield, David sends word to the commander of his armies to put Uriah on the front lines so that he will die. Uriah dies and then David takes Bathsheba to be his wife. So when Bathsheba gives birth, it doesn't look too suspicious. Soon after, God tells the prophet Nathan to confront David about this sin by telling a story about a, an unrighteous rich man who stole a poor man's lamb for a feast. When David heard this story, he became very angry and demanded to know who this unrighteous person was so that they would be put to death. And that's when Nathan reveals to David that he was that man and that God was going to judge him harshly for that sin. David is cursed by the prophet Nathan in that moment and is told that the child that Bathsheba will have will die as a result of his sin. This is the context of what we are dealing with here in Psalm 51. David has just been confronted with this egregious sin that he had committed and is coming before the Lord in repentance. He realizes that what he has done is a sin not only against the people immediately affected by his actions, but against the Lord himself. David, in the first part of this psalm, reflects, us, reflects on and reminds us as, as the audience that he, as well of, as all of mankind, are born into sin. This leads me to my first point for this evening. We need God's mercy. The first couple of verses in this psalm begin with David thoroughly repenting and asking God for his mercy. We see David ask for mercy on the grounds of God's steadfast love. Our God is one whose love abounds forever, and David asks for his mercy to flow out from his love and on to him. And what specifically does David ask for in God's mercy? To blot out his sins. Not to overlook them or to pretend that they aren't there. Not to write it off as just some silly mistake. But to completely remove them from the charge to David's account and make him pure again. What is interesting about the word choice that David uses here in the first couple of verses is that he uses three words, transgressions, iniquity, and sin. This is purposeful because all of them essentially mean the same thing, sin. 
The reason for the different words being used here are to emphasize that David is not praying for God to simply take away just one of his sins, but for God to take away each and every one of his sins. This is evidenced again in the range of words that David used to describe the forgiveness of sins, which are to blot out, to wash, and to cleanse. These words mirror that of a ritual cleaning that would happen before unclean people would approach and enter the temple. David is asking then for his whole self to be cleansed from his sins so that he can be rightly restored to his relationship with the Lord. David asks for this cleansing of his sin because he, is know, he knows that he is born into a sinful world. Because of the sins of our first parents, Adam and Eve, committed in the Garden of Eden, we have all been born into a sin nature. From our very births, we are prone to sin, constantly choosing the life of self-service over the life of service to our God. This is not something that we were ever taught to do, but something that we naturally knew how to do. And David acknowledges this very truth in verse 5 when he says that he was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did his mother conceive him. The thing is, this does not only apply to David alone, but applies to all of us as well. When we hear this truth that we are all sinful people, our first instinct is to try to make excuses and convince ourselves that we are actually pretty good. Our minds try to justify it by comparing all the good things that we do in our lives to the bad things that other people in this world do. We see others who commit sins like assault, robbery, and murder, and reason that our, that our own lying, cheating, and stealing is justifiable. The problem with this, then, is our standard for righteousness becomes too low. When we are compared with a holy God who is perfect in every way, one sin means that we can no longer exist on the same plane as our Lord and Savior. And that means we cannot be in a relationship with him on our own accord. We are all sinful people, whether we like to admit it or not. Again, if you don't believe me, take David for example. David is a man who is credited to be a man after God's own heart. This is because of his amazing love and dedication for serving the Lord. David was able to fight off Goliath with the power of the Lord behind him when no one else in Israel would. He would take the throne and become king of Israel, the most righteous king that Israel's probably ever had. And God would even make a personal covenant with him, saying that one of David's descendants would reign in God's kingdom forever. This, of course, being Jesus Christ. For all intents and purposes, David had it all. Yet he still would go on to commit one of the most recognizable sins in all of Scripture. 
If the man after God's own heart is a sinful man, think about how much more this applies to the rest of us. So Christian, my encouragement for you this evening is do not forget your starting place. Do not forget where you started before God rescued you, back when you were in the kingdom of darkness, trapped in a sinful lifestyle. When we are sharing the gospel with people, when we are telling them of the love of God, we cannot be standing on pedestals looking down at them as if we are greater than they. We cannot act like we are perfect and we are just looking down at non-Christians. We all begin on the same starting space and play on the same playing field in this life. No matter what your testimony looks like, if it be that God saved you out of a life of crime and outrageous sin, or if you were raised in a Christian home knowing nothing other than Christ, the fact still stands that we are all sinners from our births. So when we share the gospel with people, when we tell them about the grace that we have received from Christ, remember that you were once in their position. There was a time where you had not tasted the sweetness of salvation and were just as lost as they were. They were just, they are still in need of the same grace that we have received. But what is amazing about our God is that we do not remain in that starting point forever. Our God is merciful and acts to take away our sins. Let's look at the next couple of verses in this, in Psalm 51 and see this. Picking back up in verse 7, it says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Although sin is part of our nature, there is a way to purge that part of our nature out from us. Our God is merciful and works in order for our sins to be taken away from us. We were in need of mercy because of our sinful lives, stuck in situations that we could never escape from, caught in the traps and lies of sin, laying hopelessly, fearing for the worst. But God, being the amazing God that he is, intervened in our lives and showed us mercy by cleansing us of our sins and blotting out our transgressions. Our debt has been forgiven, all because our God shows us mercy. That is my second point for this evening. God gives us mercy. What is so amazing about God being the one to give us mercy is that it is not a work that we can accomplish by, or by ourselves or that we can earn. God is solely the one 
that is taking away our sins with no help from any outside force. As <laughs> the only thing that we contribute to salvation ourselves is the sin that required it. Verse 7 confirms this very idea because of where the agency lies in that sentence. David is not saying that he will wash himself in order that he may be as white as snow. David is not saying that he needs help from God to wash the part of his back that he can't reach. Instead, David is asking God alone to do the work of washing so that he may be purified from his sins. This act of purification is what we call a monergistic work of God, meaning that God alone is doing the work regardless of the individual's cooperation. God doing this work of forgiving our sins by his work alone is good news to us. This gives us assurance that the all-powerful, all-loving God will truly and assuredly give us mercy. When he saves us and he regenerates our hearts, we do not worry about keeping our end of the bargain, thinking that if we mess up, we don't receive salvation at the end. But because God is doing this work alone, we know there, that there is nothing that could stop his mercy from changing our lives. Remember, Paul writes this in Romans 8, 38 and 39. He says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present or the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If we can never be separated from the love of God, then we can never be separated from his mercy, which is an outflowing of his love. He will not cast us away from his presence, nor will he take his Holy Spirit from us. How does the Lord forgive us of our sins? Through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. The son of God, perfect in every way, came to earth and died a sinner's death all in a substitutionary atonement for our sins. He did not die to cover a limited number of your sins. He did not die to atone for all the sins you committed before you became a Christian. When Christ was hanging on that cursed tree, he did not say, it has started or it has begun. But he said the words, it is finished. Your sin has been paid for. You no longer have to bear that burden on your back. Give your life to Christ and cast your burdens on him. He has taken away your sins so that we do not have to bear them any longer. Our God is merciful and he has given us mercy through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. So then let me ask you this question. Why are you holding on to your sin? Why are you not coming before the throne of grace, repenting for your sins and asking for forgiveness? Do you think you have to meet some sort of standard or quota? 
Do you think you need to have an established quiet time or you need to pray a certain amount each day? If that's you, then I beg you quickly drop that idea and come before God and repent of your sins. Do not wait to come before God with your sins. We have a God who is merciful and will always forgive you if you come to him with a humble heart. God is not wanting you to fulfill some sort of works-based righteousness or meet some sort of standard. But God forgives based on his own merits and character and not your own. Fall before our God and Father and confess your sins for our God is merciful. And since our God is merciful to us, we then have a reason to worship his great name. Let's look at the last couple of verses of the psalm, picking back up in verse 13. It says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from your blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in right sacrifices in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Finally, we come to the ending of the psalm where David talks about how he will respond to God's mercy upon him with his response being genuine worship. David talks about the ways in which mankind can respond to the revelation of sin in our lives and the ways in which we should approach worshiping God for his mercy. When David meditates on this revelation of God's mercy, his immediate reaction is to worship. So my final point for this evening is simply that we worship God because of his mercy. We see two immediate types of worship that David says that he will take part of as a result of receiving God's mercy, that being teaching and singing. He says in verse 13 that he will teach sinners your ways, and in verse 14 that his tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. This is because David has felt the full effect of God's mercy and cannot keep it to himself. He must use every bit of his voice to proclaim the forgiveness of God to sinners, which we, know, which we know from earlier means that every single person should be hearing this because we are all sinners. Again, we see this, uh, we see this work attributed to God because in verse, for, in verse 15, David asked God to open his lips so he can praise God. Verses 16 through 19, it's very interesting from here because we see David discuss the heart 
behind sacrifice in worship. Since this psalm was written before, uh, before Christ had become incarnate, the sacrificial system was still present in Israel. This meant that instead of relying on Christ's atonement for the forgiveness of sins because they were living before Christ, the Israelites had to sacrifice livestock as their sin offerings. So anytime someone would sin, there was a physical price that they would have to pay for this transgression. It would be easy to see how some of the Israelites would not be happy with having to pay that price or would pay that price without being remorseful for what they did. Let's try to kind of contextualize this into something that we would be able to understand a little bit better. Have you ever seen a fight between two siblings? Maybe an older sibling got in trouble because of something they did to the younger sibling. Say the older one takes advantage of the younger one and gets caught by the parents and is forced to apologize. Then the apology comes out and it is the most insincere thing that you have ever heard. And that's really, they are really only apologizing to get out of trouble. The older sibling is not sorry because whatever they did to get them in trouble, but are sorry that they got caught or that the younger sibling tattled. This is the same type of repentance that David says that our God does not delight in. And this, this, this fake repentance, this outward vocal repentance without an inward heart-changing repentance. Well, when we come to God to worship him for his mercy, we should be thankful in a way that God has forgiven us from our sins with an inward desire to be more like Christ and to be conformed to his holiness. We should never worship God because we feel obligated to, but because we are moved by the beauty of God's mercy and let it break down our pride-filled, sinful spirit. Our confession and giving up of these sinful habits should be motivated from our love of God, not out of any sense of obligation. So this is my final question for you this evening. What sin are you trying to justify in your own life so that you won't feel guilty about it and have to give it up? Is there some unhealthy habit that you hold fast to because you enjoy it too much and, would, and you refuse to let God break your spirit over it? Are you confronted by your own sin but are trying to push it off because you think, oh, it's not that big of a deal? Why then are you trying to praise the Lord when you know you are sinning? Our God does not delight in your sin, especially when you try to come to him and pretend like it doesn't exist. So give up your sin at the foot of the cross and leave it there. Leave it behind. Christ's death has already paid the penalty for that sin and he has freed you from it. Our God is ready to forgive you. So don't hold on to your sin any longer. Let go. To close this evening, I just want to tell you a quick story that I recently heard from a preacher that I like. In the early 1900s, the newspaper The Times was running a story where they asked several prominent authors of that day uh, 
what's wrong with the world today. G.K. Chesterton was asked to give a response to which he responded with a one-sentence letter. He wrote in response to what's wrong with the world today. He said this. He said, Dear Sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. What Chesterton understood is that the biggest problem in this world, that this world faces, is that every person is a sinner. Sin is what causes all this pain and suffering in this world from the minute it became part of our nature. But for us, praise God, for us, we know that there is a solution. We see here in our Bibles, in the text, that our God is merciful and has blotted out our sins from our records. So if you have a relationship with God, then cast your burdens on him. Look to him and pray for forgiveness. Repent of your sins and trust in the Lord. Trust in our merciful God. Amen. Let's pray.